Well, as you know, M&D is a progressive disease. It takes things from you, all the things you love. I love to run, I love to play golf, I love to play tennis. You can't do that. You can't drive, I can't dress myself. I'm struggling to talk. And I'll miss that because, Robert, as you know, I'm a very funny yeah. guy. <laughs> M&D takes everything from you except your last great freedom, your attitude. And my attitude is don't give up, don't give in. It can't take that from me. Welcome once again to At The G. I'm Anthony Hudson, and as we find ourselves back in these uneasy times, I hope that we can make you feel a little better celebrating some special moments from our mighty ground that had real meaning, thanks to a very special man and his family. Yes, in this episode, we pay tribute to the incredible contribution of former Melbourne coach Neil Danaher who has refused to submit to the enormous setbacks in his football career and ultimately his life, turning a personal battle with motor neurone disease into an uplifting campaign which has unified the community and provided us with some interesting moments at the G. Sadly, this year, while the sports stars and celebrities will again go down the famous slide in an effort to freeze MND, the Melbourne-Collingwood match will be played in Sydney. But we can still help the cause and still look back on some very different, unforgettable MCG memories. I was in a skin giant red first national suit. I, knew, I don't know if anyone noticed, but it was, it was cold before I got in the water, Jared. <laughs> I was severely embarrassed and I was so far out of my comfort zone. One leg went one way and the other went the other and I managed to rip the hemi off the bone. I, I, I heard the pop and I felt the pain. I thought, oh, that can't be too good. Yeah, I've never, I've never been so nervous. <laughs> I practiced at home. I practiced by myself. I practiced in the mirror. Looking back, if I had a sort of half gotten into it, I think I, it would have looked more ridiculous than it did. We'll hear stories about the enormous impact of Neil Danaher as a player and coach from those close to him. He was like a whirlwind, and he walked in and he just said, "There, we're the worst team in the competition." We are far and away the worst team in the competition. <laughs> One of the great missed opportunities for Essendon was after Kevin Sheedy not to have found a way for mm. Neil Danaher to be their next coach. I think he would have been the perfect person now that I reflect. While his daughter, Beck will update us on the campaign she now leads, as well as share the personal side of the battle. I don't know. It just stopped our family, you know. In our tracks, we completely stopped. We didn't know what to do. And that's why I'm so thankful for his viewpoint on it. He's been such a, 
a positive person and he's taken this terminal illness and somehow he's found an opportunity to really make a difference. And what that's done for the families, it's given us purpose in the fight as well. And I think that you could have definitely have gone the other way. The football world never saw the best of Neil Danaher, the player. Neil was the second of four brothers who played the game at the highest level and the most talented. But he managed just 82 games in between severe knee injuries that cut him down in his prime. He would go on to coach Melbourne for a decade, leading them to the 2000 AFL Grand Final. Our story begins with ex-teammate and great friend Tim Watson, his former assistant at the Demons, and now Brisbane coach Chris Fagan, and the former Melbourne skipper Gary Lyon. Can I take you back to when you first met Neil as a player? What are your early memories of him as a, as a player and a person coming in? Uh, he was a studious kind of fellow, like uh, so different. I think the first impression of him was how different is this bloke than his older brother? Like, because Terry had already been there, fun-loving, sort of happy-go-lucky type bloke. Neil was different, um, very serious about his football. A good bloke, like he was really popular with the other players, but he was uh, um, studious, I would say, yeah. And what did we miss out on? Oh, he could have been one of the greatest players of all time. Like uh, He was penciled in as a defender, stepped straight onto the halfback flank. I don't think he ever played in the seconds. I don't think he ever – he never got dropped. He just read the ball so comfortably. That day that we played against Carlton at Princess Park and they shifted him forward, like he kicked three goals in the last quarter on Bruce Stool. So he was capable of doing more than just being a halfback floating uh, defender. He had obviously horrible luck with his knees. Do you think that shaped who he's become and what he's done? I think it's impossible not to. Like, you're young, you've just been appointed the captain of a club and you can't get out there and play. And so there was so much hardship around the game for him and so much heartache around the game for him. I think it did shape him early days and then he went in a direction of, you know, being an assistant coach and sort of being somebody that was able to analyse the game into coaching and probably somewhere in your makeup somewhere is that sort of desire or that uh, disappointment that you weren't able to uh, fulfill your own talent when you played. Do you remember how he coped with it at, at the time? Uh, I thought poorly, but, you know, like, it's funny. You look back and you think, okay, well, maybe did we support him enough or whatever, but you sort of – everyone sort of moved on with their own career at that time and SM were building and building under Kevin Sheedy. So um, I remember picking him up the first time he had his knee operated on. I went to Vimy House to pick him up after the operation and um, I went out of my way to, to do this. And, <laughs> and I think he acknowledged me at some stage, but I can't remember exactly how he might have acknowledged me. But he was like, he was a, a grumpy type of bloke. He wasn't sort of the Neil Danaher that we've seen, say, in more recent times and even towards the back end of his Melbourne career when he became known as the Reverend. But as he keeps reminding me, he's a very funny bloke. <laughs> They were interviewing for a reserves and development coach and at that stage I was coaching the Tassie Mariners in the in the TAC Cup and I just sent my CV around to a few AFL clubs more on a fishing expedition than anything to see if uh, anyone was interested in a development coach and it turned out that, that Melbourne were and I went through 
a fairly intimidating uh, interview process and somehow or other he decided to pluck me out of nowhere and give me a job despite the fact that I hadn't had a, an AFL playing background or you know didn't really have any connections at all to the Melbourne Footy Club so uh, sort of speaks a little bit about Neil I reckon and about his uh, courage to make decisions. Uh, I, I can I can still cl- can't quite work out where, why he gave me that chance but I certainly appreciate it because I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now if it wasn't for the fact that he did give me that opportunity. What did he see in you and what did that say about him? I did ask him one day, I just sort of said, you know, mate, why'd you give me a job? Because I knew there were some, you know, there were some pretty uh, good other candidates. One of the things that we had to do as part of the process, because Neil was quite a, is quite a process-driven man, is that we had to write a, a one-page-only philosophy on the development of young players for, for AFL football and I, I slaved over that. It. it took me ages to write it because my, my first draft would have been about five pages and I had to get it down to one. I worked and worked and worked on that. Um, as it turned out, he said to me, well, when I read your philosophy, it seemed like the only one that hadn't been copied out of a textbook. I, I, I just liked the fact that it was your ideas, it was original and um, it came from your heart and your mind and, and that, that sort of made a difference. So he's one of those guys that's such a student of everything that he does, very analytical. And that's probably you know one of the things I learned from him, I'm probably uh, in nature more of a people-based coach, less into stats and, and, and it's particularly at that time, less into stats and less, less into watching a whole lot of vision. And I learned a lot about that side of football coaching from him and I feel like you know that, that balanced me up a great deal. But he, he'd be always saying, there's always something you can do, Fage. There's always something you can get better at. And that was his attitude the whole time at, at Melbourne and it was a, a fantastic 10-year apprenticeship for me to work with him uh, during that time because it wasn't it wasn't always easy. We were a bit of an up and down team, but I think out of the ten years that he that he coached, we might have made six final series and and uh, grand final in two thousand. So uh, I, I always look back on that and think that he got the best out of that group because it wasn't necessarily or anywhere near close to being the best list in the competition. But they played with great spirit and great heart and and uh, you know got close on a couple of occasions. The confidence he gave me, I guess, like it's not easy when you turn up from this, you know, this young bloke from Tassie who's never had an AFL playing background to actually feel that confident in front of a group of AFL players. But he found a way to make me feel good about myself and what I had to offer, and, and I'll be forever grateful to him for that. Gaz, what, what was your first memory then of, of meeting him? Was it when he became the senior coach of Melbourne? Yep. Um, that would have been day one of pre season. He sat us down in the room. I remember as clear as day we'd finished last in 19. 19- 97 and we all sat there in the theatre and just looked at him and he walked in and he just said there we're the worst team in the competition we are far and away the worst team in the competition (laughs) that's exactly what we needed he said hey that's good now at least we know it we're going to get to work early and then he just went on this positive slant and he was like a whirlwind I always say this I've never come across a coach more ready to coach so he'd done his apprenticeship clearly in different you know forms and both as an assistant and I think in other areas, and then he just he just knew. So what you want as a new coach is you want to see that he knows exactly what he's doing. And from day one, he was as clear and concise about the way he wanted to play, how he was going to drill it, who was going to play where. And um, we had a really good year the first year. And what was your relationship like with him then? I was, really, I was captain and hadn't played footy for a couple of years because of – uh, I had the back surgeries and all that sort of stuff. So I played 10 games in two years. And he sat me down. And he said, listen, I want you to be captain, right? We'd be great. He said, but you're going to have to play. I don't want a captain that can't play. <laughs> I'm just, um, yeah, well, that's a fair, fair point. And so 
He said, so we'll go find out, find out whether you can play or not. And I'd been doing a lot of swimming and bike riding and stuff. He said, throw your bike away. He said, don't go, forget the pool. He said, let's break, if you're going to break down, break down properly. So let's do it. Let's find out. So I said, it was just perfect for me at that stage of my career. I needed someone to stop tippy-toe around and say, make it. So I did. And I remember I, I'd got through most of it. And then I, I tore my calf with about, oh, I don't know, six weeks ago. And I, I just walked into him and said, mate, I've done my calf. I don't know whether I'm going to get to the line. You know, we best look elsewhere from a captaincy point of view. So, uh, honest, straight from the word go, an honest relationship, which I really respected. Uh, he's really, inte- I mean, I think we all understand now how yeah. intelligent he is. And he's always been a, a leader. And he's always had that amazing competitive drive. I'll tell you one story about him, okay? So we had this sort of social gathering when uh, he was still playing. So this is really early in the day. And uh, we're at our place in the backyard, my place in the backyard. And... Uh, I was very generous with my time and uh, put on another big uh, social did, did event. Did you cook? Uh, I did a little bit of cooking, got a little bit of smoke in my eyes from the barbecue, but uh, we're in the backyard and we're just talking about footy. You know, like just blokes do, and Vander was there and he's having a beer and stuff like that. And just out of nowhere, Neil said, oh, yeah, you don't take your football seriously enough to Vander. Like, and it would just, it just came out of nowhere. And I'd never heard anyone talk like that mm. to another teammate before. And then he got so wound up. He actually, he, he was crying. Like he, he thought that he wanted to be part of something that was successful and he looked around and he just thought that some of the blokes were just taking it too casually and they weren't as committed and as professional as what he was and what he wanted them to be. He was really confrontational. That resonates with me. Like he, he loved doing that and just sitting someone back on their heels. We were training early days and I think it was Glenn Lovett myself we're doing the rehab, you know, trying to get themselves right. And we'd finished our work, so we went and stood on the boundary and had a few kicks and watched the training. And then he saw us and he just screamed at the top of his lungs. I can't use the language. Hey, F off. If you're not training, F off. So, and we just looked. Like, I, was, I was the incumbent captain. Glenn was the you know, older statesman. And we just looked at him and went, the rest of the blokes all looked at So off we wander. And, and hey, the message was so clear. If you're playing with us and you're training and you're, and you're in, good. If you're not, off you go and get yourself to the stage. Don't go standing around the periphery because you're no good to me. And no one had ever shouted out like that to us. So I, I get that. He loved it. He loved that. It was probably the first game that I ever had any involvement with him and that I remember the most. We had to go to, to Wellington to play Sydney Swans in one of those, I think it still might have been called the Ansett Cup back then. And we're playing at the Basin Reserve in, in Wellington there and, um, I mean, I knew, I knew he was a pretty fierce sort of character and pretty serious. But the halftime spray he gave that day, mostly directed at Jeff Farmer and David Neitz, who were two pretty good players, by the way, I couldn't believe it. Like, I thought, wow. <laughs> and, and, and everybody else couldn't believe it either. Um, they weren't having good games, and he, and he let them know in no uncertain terms. So uh, I remember that very clearly. And he was a bit of a fire and brimstone man for the first uh, couple of years of his coaching and then modified his approach somewhat to embrace the idea of leadership groups and involving the players more. And so he wasn't the same coach at the end that he was at the start. But those early days, even me, I, I didn't like going to team meetings. I thought he'd he give me a spray for something at, at different times. He was, just, he was just a hard man. But it was probably important for Melbourne at the time to have that sort of a coach. And as I said, he was smart enough to, to modify that across the course of his 10 years to get the best out of those players. The whole reverend thing, were you surprised that, that he turned into that for, for the latter part of his coaching or something that he sort of understood that Melbourne needed? I was surprised because I think it was almost like a role that he was playing. And you just said it then. I think he felt that maybe Melbourne needed that. 
and he had to give more of himself and he bought in to that because even if you look, I look at him now and what he's doing with MND and the fact that he had to go so public with it and he had to create that profile around himself to be able to sell the messaging of MMD. It's not something that actually sits that comfortably with him. And I see how much toll that takes away from That's such an effort and a performance that he still is able to deliver. But I think it was something that he just sensed, okay, this is what I need to do and this is what I need to be. But he is a big personality. Like, he's a Danaher. Like, it was hidden for a long time that he was this Danaher-type person, but he's very entertaining when he wants to be. Could you have seen that come and guess? No, I didn't. So he went preliminary final first year. Ordinary 99. Shocking. Lost, you know, Jimmy and Viney and Lyons and, and Lovett. 2000 grand final. So he went prelim, shocking, grand final. Yeah. So and then it dropped off, and it, when the drop off came, there were some issues, and that's when I think he said, "Right, I've got to be the front man for this footy club because they they can be a team who loses their way pretty quickly." And he did; he took control of it. You know, we can uh, when you look back now. I think one of the great missed opportunities for Essendon was after Kevin Sheedy not to have found a way for mm. Neil Danaher to be the next coach. He could have he could have filled that void a lot better than what it was filled and the side sort of drifted and lost its identity, all sorts of things. And I think he would have been the perfect person now that I reflect on mm. that, that decision yeah, or that non-decision. I, I guess, that, that, and it's still largely the case, but once you're discarded, you're discarded as a coach often. Yeah, and he shouldn't have been. like He shouldn't have been lost to the game the way that he was. A, you know, it, it ends for coaches. That happens all the time. But, you know, why he wasn't then sought as a senior AFL coach, it just beggars belief when you actually analyse it now. Neil was diagnosed with motor neurone disease in 2014 while working as football manager at the West Coast Eagles, which naturally shocked his friends and colleagues as they tried to grasp the harsh reality of the diagnosis. At that stage, it wasn't sort of so uh, obvious, the, the, you know, the, the, the ravages of MMD really hadn't begun. They yep. hadn't really started properly. And you know, when somebody says, look, you know, they've got this lifespan, a short lifespan now, it doesn't probably hit home as much as what you think it might until you actually sort of see where he's at right now. And then you look at him and you think, okay, well, I can now notice the obvious changes in him. But uh, I, I was sad. Like he was, you know, we're the same age. Like you, you said, obviously, that somebody is going to be uh, left in this debilitating position and then ultimately it's going to lead to death. How did you find out that he had the disease and what sort of impact did it have on you? I heard a little whisper he wasn't well um, from uh, Mark Riley, who, who worked with us at Melbourne at one stage as an assistant coach. Um, and then I, I reckon a day or two later, I, I got a call from, him, from Neil and he, and he told me, and he goes, that's the last time we talk about it, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going, right, I didn't really know uh, a lot about MND. So the first thing I did when I got off the phone to him was um, Googled MND to learn a little bit about it. And, you know, to my shock, it sort of said, you know, the, the life expectancy from once you're diagnosed is somewhere between 12 and 18 months. That came as a little bit of a shock. And then I read about how it works. I thought, well, this is, this is not good at all. And uh, I, was, I was really upset. But it's funny, I'd meet up with him and he was so positive and stoic and you know, look into the future that you sort of uh, just took the attitude that he took and that's, you know, let's make life normal and, and uh, have fun while we've got time together. So um, we have regular catch-ups. It's been a little bit harder 
uh, since I've been up here in Brisbane. But we we usually catch up at least once or twice a year where where he gives me a lecture about coaching and my team and things that we could doing be doing better. Uh, but continue to encourage me and uh, I hope he lasts a lot longer because I, I love those conversations and. It's amazing. Seven years on, he's still there. He's beaten that 12 to 18 months expectancy. And I, I, I honestly think, when I, I think, why has that happened? And I think it's because he's had real purpose in the last seven years to try and do something about it. And that's sustained him. The impact, of course, was greatest on his family. His wife, Jan, and four children, Lauren, Luke, Ben and Beck. So I would have been just 23 when dad was diagnosed and I had no idea what MND was So I had no idea it was terminal. It wasn't until I um, later read all of the facts that were pretty scary, I have to be honest, um, reading what they had to say MND was and how never, no one ever survives a diagnosis. Um, but they did say when I read it, it was 27 months was the lifespan of someone with MND and here we are seven years later. So I'm feeling very lucky. Yeah, that must have been a big shock, though, for 23 years of age and, you know, your dad's still you know, done so much and still at that stage so robust. Hard to come to terms with something like that, I guess. It definitely is. Um, dad has always been such a fit and active guy. Obviously, he's gone through his playing days, but he always stayed so fit and healthy. And to read that M&D was going to take away all of that, it was really hard to sort of take his diagnosis and then look at him who was still so strong and fit and understand what was going to be ahead of us. What was the immediate impact it had on, on your family and you know, a big family both your immediate family and then broader? Oh devastation really it was absolutely devastating news. It was hard to think that there wasn't anything that he could do that there wasn't really effective treatments there wasn't you know chemotherapy radio like all these things that we hear so much about every day that people can fight back against different types of illnesses and to sort of read that there was nothing there that he could do, it, it, I don't know, it just stopped our family, you know, in our tracks, we completely stopped, we didn't know what to do and that's why I'm so thankful for his viewpoint on it. He has been such a, a positive person and he's taken this terminal illness and somehow he's found an opportunity to really make a difference and what that's done for the families it's given us purpose in the fight as well and I think that you could have definitely have gone the other way. I spoke to him about the possibility of talking about it publicly and he originally said no but then when he had obviously absorbed it and he felt that he now needed to talk about it because he had another plan beyond that which we now know was the MMD campaign, but at that time I flew over to Perth, so I did an interview with him and um, he talked to me about that and the seriousness of it. And at the time he said, look, you know, 18 months, maybe to three years, I've got to live well. He's still going seven years, yeah. seven years later. He had an idea about how to create some publicity around it, but I went back after that and I spoke to my boss, Lewis Martin at Channel 7. I said, look, you know, can we help this bloke in some way? Because... He's got an idea, but he doesn't really know how to approach it and how to build on it. And he said, okay. So he sat down with Neil and then uh, Gary sat down with Neil and then Lewis sat down with Neil. And because he understood, he didn't really understand the landscape of the media, but he understood that he needed the media on side, but somebody else had to pull it all together and everybody had to agree that, okay, set aside your, you know, your, your, your affiliations. Uh, this is for MND. This is for Neil Danaher. 
And he just had that capacity to win people over. We met in, in a, just at a coffee shop in Camwell and we spoke about this idea that it, this germination of an idea and, you know, we bounced ideas around and where it was going to happen and what quickly became apparent was that there would be great love and support for him because we all love him and the bipartisan approach that was then taken, adopted through Tim and Lewis and, and Channel 9. I mean, we, we, were, yeah, we were a bracy footy show at the time who didn't like Channel 7 and they probably hated us, but everyone just said, no, no, let's just park that. And that was, and then I had a chat with Lewis and Tim and then, and then away the, the freeze idea came and away it went. So these boys over here at 7 did an unbelievable job in pr- pushing it and promoting it and and we threw, I think you came on the footy show too, didn't you? Yes, yeah, we did. Yeah, 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 yeah we did. And uh, it really was, um, yeah, well, like everybody needed to get involved, obviously, but it needed a face of it as well, which was Neil. Neil's extraordinary humour and charm in his dire circumstances has had a profound impact in getting his message across and on those hosting his annual media appearances, both on Channel 7 and on Fox Footy's AFL 360 program with Jared Waitley and Mark Robinson. Well, as you know, MND is a progressive disease. Um, it takes things from you. Um, all the things you love. I love to run. I love to play golf. I love to play tennis. You can't do that. It takes... You can't drive. I can't dress myself. Um, I'm struggling to talk. Um, and I'll miss that because, Robert, as you know, I'm a very funny yeah. guy. <laughs> I'm hilarious. You are a and very, what I miss the most very funny man. is to have a belly laugh. It'll eventually take that from me. So MD progresses and it takes. It takes. But there's one thing it can't take from me, Robert. MD takes everything from me except your last great freedom, and that's your. Right to choose your attitude, no matter the circumstance. They choose your own way. And my attitude is don't give up. Don't give in. You can't take that from me. Neil's legacy in the game was really interesting. Heartbreak story as a player, commanding figure as a coach. That's how he earned... The reverend. Yeah, he was a pulpit pounder. And hot gospeler. A hot gospeler a he hot was. Gospeler. And now in this moment where I mean his purpose is it feels profound, to be honest, if you think about it in any depth. And this is the day we get to demonstrate our support of him. I have to fight off sadness to find the beautiful bit. I end up getting to the beautiful bit that you were speaking about. But Neil Neil comes in here, has come in here every year for the last six. And like everyone else, we've watched him watch the deterioration. I can remember when Neil sitting here was talking one day, Jared, and I looked down at his hands and I was starting to knuckle up. And I looked at him and he was still talking about, not about himself, not about being scared to die. It was always about someone else. And I, everyone, when, again, when Neil appears, everyone says, he should be the Australian of the year, he should be the Victoria of the year. And I go, yeah, I agree, I agree. But so many people do some wonderful things, and, and he's getting he's getting recognised. But, but what we are what we are seeing in Neil Dammer, forget football for a second, just push football away. We are seeing the best of, of humanity in a man who played football and coached football. Separate that. He is living for the purpose of 
trying to save people's lives. That's right. It won't help him in it's the here and now. It's not going to help him, mate. And it's for, it's for a generation after, really. There's a saying in football, when it's your time to go, you got to go. You know what I mean, Robert? Yeah, I do. When, when it's your time to go, and it's my time to go. I thought I'd like to do something, but I didn't think it'd be this big. I didn't think, uh, you know, a few chook ruffles, mate. <laughs> and meet you on a Friday night in the pub. A few baked pies. <laughs> a few ruffles. But uh, it's got huge. Again, we've sat here. We've sat here and he comes in and Beck's over there. and You can hear a pin drop, can't you? Yep. When he's here. And he's talking about death. He won't talk about his family. That, that upsets him too much. But when he's here, this is going to sound so ridiculous, but it is so real. You want to put an arm around him. You want to give him a hug. But he, I don't think he's a hugging type, <laughs> other blokes. You know, he's a tough country boy. What are you doing? What are you doing? <laughs> But you just want to give him, put your arm and say, man, you're a champ. You're... There's not enough superlatives, there's not enough words actually to describe Neil Danner. And we're just lucky, aren't we? We're lucky to, to be beside an inspirational person. And every single person who's watching this video who has met Neil Danner would be feeling exactly like we're feeling right now and have their own words and their own feelings to describe what it's like to be in the presence of a person who is one of the great people. Was that his immediate response? Like, did you sort of feel like oh, he's putting up a front here, or, or did you straight away sort of realise that this was the only way to cope with it? Oh, I think Dad's a protective guy. Okay. Um, the, our parents always try to, you know, protect us from these harsh realities in life. And um, you know, from my perspective, he's always just taken on the challenge, and he's he sort of thought back and was like, okay, what can I do? How can I make a change? How can I, in my own way, fight against the beast? And from day dot with me, that that's how he showed it. And there's always going to be ups and downs in a fight against MND, in, in the fight of a terminal illness. There's times where there's just frustration coming through. There is sadness across the family. Um, but he's been able to spin it and find a way to look forward and look to the future and, you know, he's creating an incredible legacy. Um, but, yeah, there's been so many moments in life where it, that hasn't been the positive outlook. m and a beast. It's taking away his ability to walk. You know, it's starting to take away his ability to talk and that's been probably the, the hardest thing I've seen so far because he's a funny guy. <laughs> he's a funny guy and he's got so much knowledge and wisdom to impart as well and it's getting harder and harder for him to do that and that as a family is just you know I can't I can't really explain it it must be so frustrating for him because he must be seeing me do stuff at the foundation being like oh what is she doing (laughs) (laughs) um but sort of um you know for the most part I can understand everything he says to me Um, I'm getting all these amazing time with him Um, we're just taking every moment as we can yeah, that must be something pretty special as a daughter to most people are so busy at this age of their lives and probably the time they get to their parents sort of disappears gradually as they have to live their own lives. But it must be quite an incredible thing as well. It's, yeah, there's a silver lining for sure. We've become closer and closer every year and we're both on this sort of path um, where we want to make sure that Fight MND is successful as possible so we can make sure we close off the door and that means we're working together every single day. 
And, you know, previously he was a football coach and um, over across in WA and doing living his own life. was <laughs> separate from us, but we've um, really come a lot closer because we've got this common goal that we're working towards. And I absolutely love spending time with him. And then, you know, personal life, I didn't think I would have him walking me down the aisle because I didn't think he would be still with us. And I got to have that and watching him being a grandparent to my niece and nephew. There's all these beautiful moments that we're getting, which is just absolutely fantastic. We've learned so much about the essence of him in this time. It's been such a public fight. What, what was he like as a dad growing up? Busy. Um, always really busy. Um, he you know, spent so much time with the Melbourne Football Club. He lived and breathed it for so long and um, he's so passionate. He works so incredibly hard in the background and he's really dedicated to whatever his um, goal is that he's trying to achieve. Um, but he was always being so supportive. Um, all of us kids were doing 20 different types of sport every single weekend, weekday. Um, he always allowed us to sort of spread our wings and to take our own path. Um, he'd be there to, to guide us, but he wouldn't be telling us what to do. Um, but at the end of the day, he's always just been dad to me. So <laughs> it's, a, it's a hard question. He's yeah. always been sort of the same person to me. When did you get involved in terms of the foundation and, and why did you get involved other than the obvious? I got involved um, pretty early. Um, so with Big Freeze One, uh, my sister as well as my now husband, we really wanted to help out in our own way. So we came up with the concept of the beanies and uh, it was pretty interesting to get the sign-off from Nilo. He thought it was a pretty terrible idea <laughs> at the time. He sort of signed us off and allowed us to go away and make 5,000 of these blue beanies. And then by the end of that campaign, we'd sold 33,000 and now we see them everywhere. So we really wanted to help Dad. We wanted to be able to fight back in our own way and take control back because that's sort of what happens when you're watching someone that you love go through such hardship and, you know, they're physically being affected by an illness you want to be able to try and help in whatever capacity you can so we got involved from you one and then I was lucky to join the team in 2016 and I'm just trying to do everything I can to not have a job <laughs> I, don't, I want the doors at vitamin D to close so because we've got a cure and we've got treatments and we're not needed and that is my goal every single time I wake up so it's that it's that strong with you is it every time you wake up that's what you that's what's driving you Yes, yeah, it's my, this is beyond a job. This is a passion. This is my way of helping Dad as well as helping all these amazing people that I've met throughout the journey that are fighting against the beast. And it's quite a difficult journey because I'm meeting these incredible people, but the beast strikes pretty quickly for the most part. I had um, a friend that only lasted six weeks from diagnosis before she passed and she left two beautiful kids behind and we lost the late Ian Davis who was one of the founding members so it's been difficult but I do feel like this is giving me such a purpose that's beyond you know just getting a paycheck this is all about shutting off the disease helping dad in my own way and hopefully making a difference for people in the future. MND's never really had an opponent. It's never had something that's been able to slow it down or stop it in the tracks. And we had live in a really caring society. So once you tell that story, people wanted to help in their own way. 
I spoke to one of the professors last year about this and he said, um, you know, people just don't underestimate how important Neil was to MMD because we could never actually put in place a face of MMD because people died too soon and too suddenly, you know, like, and you couldn't get a campaign, you couldn't get anything up and running because that person was replaced, you know, and Neil's had this very slow form of MMD whereby he's been so visible and the disintegration of him has been so visible for all of us that we've all over a period of time really understood, you know, what MMD is all about. And really, we we didn't know how many times that was going to happen, but each year he'd come on and the feeling, the impact he had, the way he inspired mm. people just got bigger and bigger. That When he first said that, you know, the beast, you know, like we're going to attack the beast and it was such a powerful message and you only have to see now right across the country, like his profile right across the country and how that's been built on the back of this campaign and how he drove it and how people still look for it. You know, people go and buy their beanies every year now because that's what you do at this time of the year. It was a self-deprecation that resonated with everyone. And then, and then everyone goes, put themselves in, your own, in their own position and go, could I do that? And for the life of me, I, I never could. But he did. He just fronted up and he poked fun at himself. He could always have a laugh, always crack a joke, and it destigmatized the whole you know situation and... Every year, you're right, he wouldn't be moving as freely or his speech would be you know, a little harder to understand, but he did it with such grace and dignity and, and the profound legacy will live, obviously, for hundreds of years. So we've just been absolutely blown away by the support we've received. In Big Freeze 1, we were hoping to raise $250,000 and that campaign alone raised $2 million and it's just been able to increase the momentum of research because we've been able to fund. But we can't do this at, uh, by ourselves. Um, at Fight MND, we say, uh, Fight MND, it takes people. And while the beast is taking lives every single day, it's going to take an army of people to stop it. So we are so thankful for everything that everyone's doing. And what sort of progress has been made? Uh, there's finally hope on the horizon. We're really hopeful that there will be a treatment that will slow down the progression of the disease in the coming years. And this is really important because we want to slow it down because the cure may take a longer time um, to actually find the answers to it. But we are seeing an army of researchers working around the clock, being highly motivated to find this answer. And the amount of knowledge that we have on MND grows every single day. So we have never been as educated in what MND is how it affects the body and potential sort of weaknesses in it. So, you know, I'm just so grateful that we're looking at the situation and we can see hope in the future that there will be an answer and it's not this big mist where we can't get through. What about the slide? So we saw the amazing uh, progress and the amazing response people had to the ice bucket challenge. And so they wanted, they looked at this ice bucket and they were like, okay, let's step it up. Let's go one more. Let's have a giant pool full of ice, full of water and get these people to slide down, have a bit of fun, have a bit of laugh because what's so important to us from Day Dot is that we had fun while we were fundraising. But it's just a moment in time and we really wanted to freeze MND in its tracks. So having these sliders go down into the freezing water was a sign that we were going to freeze and stop MND. I've got to say, this is obvious, but it's bloody cold when you, 
that. Let's go backtrack though. We were we were in the first group, so we were supporting this great yeah. notion and idea, and then they said, "Well, you you folks are going to have to do it." So. You, <laughs> You couldn't back out, right? So, you know, <laughs> fair enough. And then there was none of the dress-up stuff or any of that. No, not we, then. We just walked around. I was commentating. I got, I said, oh, i got to go, boys. I'll come back. Walk around and there, I don't know. I mean, we just sat in the rooms before the game looking at each other. <laughs> there was no, no one knew what it was, right? So then you go and do it. And, of course, you freeze it. You freeze your nuts off and you jump out. <laughs> but now the theatre around it's great and the pomp and the ceremony yeah. and the dress-up and the charitable aspects are great. But... Being the first, you just yeah, no idea what was going on. Bravo! <laughs> you must have felt a little bit of trepidation in the red skin suit from the real estate company who'd paid you thirty grand to put it on. Trepidation? My God! They've... I was in a skin giant red first national suit who came in here and said, we will give Neil Danaher's research project $30,000 if you wear this suit in front of everyone at the MCG and live on national TV. I was severely embarrassed and I was so far out of my comfort zone. I, knew, I don't know if anyone noticed, but it was, it was cold before I got in the water, Jared. <laughs> when you're on top, it's like awesome, isn't it? Yeah. Like the adrenaline through your body is like, well, and all you do is going down a slide. That's all you're, you're not jumping off a cliff. You're going down a slide. It, it was a, a fantastic event. And man, oh, I've got a photo of it up at home. I'm really proud. I am. I'm so proud to, to play such a really, really yeah. tiny. Leave your part. dignity at the top of the slide. Oh, yeah. And don't forget to hold your breath when you go into the water. And I hope the people out there tonight support our cause, get behind their art. But they did with you, No, right? they did, Niels. And they love him more than you. No, they don't. <laughs> no, they don't. They don't. Well, I hope they raise more money. Go! There he goes! Oh, into the pool! All the things that were rattling through my mind in the black caviar. And suits, the suit. I went in and forgot to hold my breath. And underneath oh, did you? I've got to get out of here with some sort of sense when I get up above the water. Yeah, when you get up. <laughs> yeah, everyone's watched everyone get up and you go... <laughs> no, it is. It, it oh, hits it, you. It, hits it you goes proper. bang. Oh, God. The two things for me that stand out is that unbelievable performance from Nick Revolt. <laughs> he took it to a whole new level. <laughs> It took me a couple of days to land on something, but probably one of the things that got missed, I mean, clearly in the end it was it was Freddie Mercury um, Queen from Queen, but I was I thought that maybe it's a tenuous link, but Queen's birthday was, that just got lost in the wash. Um, so I'd seen Bohemian Rhapsody maybe a month before that, um, and then I was flicking channels on, on Foxtel and saw it come on, and I thought, oh, yeah, I'll... Okay, I'll give I'll give that a go. Um, not not knowing, like just at that stage, thinking I'm just going down the slide. I'll walk up, I'll get up, I'll go down the slide, um, and from there it sort of grew legs and evolved. Um, so I won't say begrudgingly it grew legs because I you know I, I did I did quite enjoy I did quite enjoy it, but um, a little bit of pressure came. How much work did you put into it in terms of what you were going to wear and what you were going to do? 
I called on the the girls at Fox Footy from from wardrobe and makeup to help me out a little bit. Just if I wanted to, if I want to recreate this look, what do I need to do? And they said, well, it's all the teeth. If you're going to do it, you have to do the teeth. So I got help with the teeth. The teeth were like excruciating. They were terrible. They were they were very very uncomfortable. But and then the the hair clearly was was an issue. So I had to spray paint the hair. So they helped me find the jeans. They helped me find the singlet, the shoes. I, I went in and I picked up a pair of, of the of the white trainers, the belt. Um, you know. That they were great helping me out with the detail, and we so we had a little, we had a little dress rehearsal in here one day just to see if we could sort of recreate it, you know, all under the veil of secrecy, uh, and it, and it looked pretty good. So we thought, okay, I think this is a, I think this is a winner. Let's do it. So then it, it evolved. So a bit of production value and a bit of pressure came from. Uh, from Lewis Martin and from from Neil himself, and of course, when Neil makes the call, you you have to answer and you have to step up. So the singing and dancing was something that I didn't anticipate on happening, uh, but yeah, once the pressure came from um, from the man himself, well, then I had no choice but to oblige, and it it, it is what it was. It was um, yeah, it was it was a bit of fun. Yeah, you played in grand finals and big games on the MCG, big crowds, huge atmosphere. How would you compare the nerves? Uh, greater. Yeah, I've never, I've never been so nervous. Not knowing, and no one else knew that I was singing and dancing apart from uh, the the coordinators of the day. So even the other sliders didn't know what I was about to do. Uh, but the the one piece of advice that I got that I'm I'm glad I did. You got to go all in because if you if you do it half assed, you're going to look like a goose. So I, <laughs> I practiced at home. I practiced by myself. I practiced in the mirror, like real sort of wanker type <laughs> behaviour upon reflection. But it was it was good advice, and I'm glad I um I heeded the advice because looking back, if I had a sort of half gotten into it, I think I, it would have looked more ridiculous than it did. But um, yeah, in the end, just just went for it. Had a lot of fun, and um. Yeah, like I don't know what happened to me. It's almost like I took on, um, I took on a bit of Freddy, uh, and and that was the other part as well. My a lot of people sort of call me Freddy because my middle name's Frederick. So there was there was that sort of a couple of very tenuous little links in here, Hutto, that I'm grasping at. But um, oh, I was it was just such a fun day, and um, yeah, I've just got such such fond memories of it. And you mentioned Neil, so I mean, obviously, part of the reason you wanted to do it was because of the cause and, and because yeah. of Neil. And you've left your own little stamp on the day, and which you should obviously be really proud of. It's incredible what they've done. They're they're an inspiration to, to so many people. Uh, as as a, someone that's involved in in non for profit, you know, at a very personal level, to to see the behemoth that Fight MND and the day has become, it it, it is inspiring. Um, there are so many lessons for us all in it. Uh, none greater than the, the lesson um, that Neil's taught us with respects to resilience, you know, facing up to your, to, to adversity and, and tackling it head on and um, putting yourself out there for the betterment of others. So uh, to have played a, a small part in, in what was just a, a, a an extraordinary day, a, a really fun day, a really upbeat day, I think that's the essence of of what they've been able to catch up for something so serious to have such a such a sense of sense of fun really about it um you know they've, they've just been able to capture that perfectly and the other one was and the other one was chris bacon doing his hamstring <laughs> which we shouldn't laugh about but it resulted in an operation i mean that's how serious it was 
three, two, one, go! Of the Brisbane Lions. Has he done his hamstring? I think he's done his hamstring. Did you do your hammy? I reckon I pulled it off the back. Oh, no. <laughs> just a bit of a slip up there, mate, at the end. <laughs> just have a look at it. You actually have done your hammy, haven't you? Yeah, I have. I dressed as the Reverend, which was Neil's nickname at the, at the D's. In that, uh, went down the slide, no dramas. Uh, getting out of the, uh, the pool, I slipped on the step. One leg went one way and the other went the other, and I managed to ripped the hemi off the bone on, on my left side. Um, I knew I'd done something quite bad because I I heard the pop and I felt the pain. I thought, oh, that can't be too good. Then I get called over to the interview with Hamish McLaughlin, I think, and I'm thinking, jeez, how am I going to get over there? So I, I limp over and have a chat to him. By that stage, I'm feeling pretty faint, to be honest. And uh, I, uh, I think the shock of the cold water and then ripping the hemi off the bone was maybe a little bit too much for this little old body to uh, cope with. So anyway, I, I managed to get through the chat to Hamish. Uh, I had to sit down before I passed out, um, pretty much, and uh, managed to get a bit of air in and started to feel a little bit better. And then I, they put me on the back of that, that buggy that they bring out to sort of take the injured players off the ground on. I got uh, driven around to the change room, much to everybody's amusement that saw me as I drove past. But um, look, it was a bit of fun. It was talked about for a long time. And as I said to Neil, gave the big freeze a little bit of extra publicity that you wouldn't have bargained for, mate. I said it was only appropriate probably that I went the extra couple of yards to, to support the cause. And I'm sure everyone at your footy club would have had a bit of fun with it. Uh, yeah, apparently the boys were up here watching it on the Monday and um, it caused a great amount of laughter when I um, yeah slipped and did the injury. We had to buy the next week, so I think the freeze was on the Monday. I had the operation on the Wednesday and went back to Brisbane that weekend. I think they all thought I'd be in a wheelchair when I um, came in. They were quite disappointed when I uh, walked in, a little bit gingerly, I might add, but into the club. So, uh, no, they, they had a great amount of fun with that. Uh, you know, our boys are really aware of uh, MND because this time of year I talk to them about it a lot and talk about a lot of Neil's qualities and show them some of the talks that he's done over the last few years just to bring life into perspective, which you often need in AFL footy and so, you know, we've used all that up here as, as, as a great learning tool. There's always opportunity. I've diagnosed with the disease that will kill me. No treatment, no cure. No hope someday. Where's the opportunity? I tell you, if you're in the blame game, if you're in woe is for me, ball bugger me, you never find it. You're looking to blame someone. There's always opportunity. My opportunity was to fight MND. And it allowed me to prevail. It allowed me to find purpose. Hammy, good these days? Yeah, it's not too bad. I, I, um, I'm back doing some, uh, I don't know whether you call what I do, Hutto, as running, but I do hobbling. Uh, you know, I've got a nice little grassy patch not far from where I live and get out and do some some strides. And uh, every now and then I feel a little bit of a twinge there where it's been reattached. But, you know, by and large, the surgeon did a great job and I'm functioning fully and I've got a scar there to remind me of that day for the rest of my life. But um, that's, not a, that's not a bad reminder, I don't think. 
I, I get shocked when I haven't seen him for a while. Yeah. But it's, yeah, like, I guess we all, ultimately, we know what the outcome will be. And he hasn't I, been afraid of talking about that either, though, has he? he oh, no. Straight away. No, no. I mean, he said to me more than once, you know, like, um, you know, you're going to die too. <laughs> 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 it may be, it may not be like how I die, but you're going to die as well. So, and I'm with Gary. There's no way known that I could have dealt with it the way that he has. I think he's, he's just a great, one of the great Australians, you know, we're going to, I think we'll be talking about Neil Danaher. Always say Jimmy is, you know, Jimmy Steins is so amazing because he's had this unbelievable footy story, but what he did outside was better. That's, that's the way I rate it. And I think Neil is, you know, Neil's footy story is unbelievable. Tim's just told you could have been one of the greatest ever. He coached and all that. But what he's done now in the face of everything he's facing means he'll be remembered as one of the great Australians. And we I was privileged to have a small time with him. You know what? I actually find him still inspirational. Every time I'm around him, every time I see him, I think, you know, what a true inspiration you are. Like you are a genuine hero. We throw tags around about, you know, people being legends and heroes and that type of thing. But he is all of that and more. He gives me a lot of satisfaction to sit here and say we've delivered on what we said we would do. We will raise funds, we'll back our best and brightest, and we have a chance to find a treatment and cure here in Australia. We started the fight, Jared, long way to go, but wouldn't have been possible without the support of uh, everyone out there. The one and only Neil Danaher and his amazing contribution to the fight against motor neurone disease. A big thanks to all who have contributed to this episode, including Tim Watson, Gary Lyon, Chris Fagan, Nick, Freddie Revolt, the team at AFL 360, Jared Waitley, Mark Robinson, and executive producer Tim Hodges, and to the team at Channel 7, led by Lewis Martin, who has played such a significant role in the foundation. And of course, Beck Danaher, whose passion and drive for the cause is doing so much to help fight the beast. Sadly, this year's Queen's birthday clash between Melbourne and Collingwood will be played in Sydney. But Big Freeze 7 is well and truly underway, and the sliders will still be doing the sliding. And you can play your part by buying a beanie or donating at fightmnd.org.au. In the meantime, we'll keep our fingers crossed and hope to see you back soon at the gym.